Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Chronic Wellness Podcast, a show dedicated to quieting the noise in the health, food, and fitness world. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren, former TV news journalist and ex-chronic illness patient, gone functional medicine practitioner, and a health detective. When countless doctors, diets, and doctor Google searches in my own health history really couldn't help me heal. And today I'm on a mission to disrupt both conventional wisdom and diet dogmas as we know it and bring you root cause solutions instead and insights that actually work. So you can also optimize your utmost potential and do what it is you're really meant to do in this world. Today we're talking all about epigenetics, a really big fancy word for the factors in our diet and our lifestyles and our environments that really turn our genes on and off. So genetics have been a big buzzy thing since I think like 23andMe came out on the market. If you're familiar with that test where you can test your own genetics, we also see things like Ancestry.com where you can find out where your ancestors are from and give you some really cool, fascinating info. Even gut tests like the Viome test that's doing kind of like a genetic blueprint of your gut have got people really energized and nerding out on the topic of genes. However, just remember that genes are only a piece of the puzzle. They're actually only about 5 to 10% of our health outcomes. The other 90 to 95% really relate back to the factors in our diet, our lifestyle, and our environment, and again, which would be our epigenetics. And these are the things that influence our genetic coding and can even rewire perhaps some of that genetic coding that should be quote-unquote normal, expressing our genes rather. The diet, lifestyle and environmental factors that will help you express your genes. And perhaps a lot of times in, in a negative light, we, we think about epigenetics, but we can also think about it in a positive light as what are the things that can also help bring out your like healthy genetics, maybe your fitness uh, performance and your really great uh, runner, <laughs> like if you're from, or sprinter rather, uh, as we see a lot of athletes or those that are on the track and field kind of sports, Whereas for others, it may be something in their creative genius or just having really great genetics for aging. And again, in our diet, lifestyle, and environment, that can influence our genes. A really great example of the fact that genes really aren't the end-all be-all for our health outcomes is because people are not born with cancer. They're not born with diabetes or obesity or anorexia or autoimmune disease. You may have the genes for these things, but they do not come out or alive and express themselves in our infancy. It's really genes that load the gun and then our environment, diet and lifestyle and our gut health, as I love to talk about as well, pull the trigger. So it's a big reason why I don't do a lot of genetic testing alone in clinical practice. And I do think tests such as 23andMe are a little sliver piece of the puzzle if that's what you're looking for just to to understand your health today because other functional types of testing, as well as just straight up lifestyle and dietary assessment can really help you and your clinician determine root causes behind the expression of your genes. So the epigenetic factors are really what explain why we get disease. So my mold journey is another really great example of this. So when I got really sick with mold, I ended up getting diagnosed with like 10 different chronic illnesses and conditions I had never had before. Things like asthma, all sorts of autoimmune diseases, chronic migraines, and mast cell activation syndrome. And I didn't get those overnight. These, again, were things that perhaps were in my genetic makeup to have, but it really wasn't until I was exposed to a lot of toxicity in the home and uh, my environment that these things expressed. So 
We have Dr. Erica Gray in the house today to chat all about epigenetics and genetics with us. She is a trained pharmacist, educator, national speaker, and co-founder and chief medical officer of Toolbox Genomics and My Toolbox Genomics, which is a digital platform that takes an individual's genetic test results and offers a virtual toolbox of informative and user-friendly lifestyle choices and action plans to live the healthiest life they can possible. So with almost two decades of experience in the world of functional medicine and a decade of experience in genomics and pharmacy, Dr. Gray is dedicated to helping practitioners and individuals like you understand the intersection of their unique genetics with the environment and how we can positively change our health trajectories. So without further ado, let's get to the show and talking all about epigenetics with Dr. Gray. Well, Dr. Erica, so excited to have you in the house today to talk about a really um, very buzzy topic out there, say genetics, epigenetics. We hear those words thrown around. We've heard of 23andMe, methylation maybe, dirty genes, like all the things. And yet like to really understand uh, what all of these things mean in a layman's terms. And I, I couldn't think of no one better than you um, as just an expert and leader in the field to come on the show today. So before we dive into today's topic of epigenetics though, and I uh, would love to know a little bit more about you, what got you into doing the work you're doing in the world today? Oh, thanks for that sweet intro, Lauren. We, you know, they usually say the best ideas, you you fall into them or they come to you and this was no different. So I'm a pharmacist by training, um, was taught about pharmacogenomics. So how we break down our drugs and how that's can be really individual based on um, your gender or ethnicity. And so I already had some familiarity with it, but then when 23andMe came on the scene and they had all of this information, my parents, of course, did it and said, sweetie, what do you think? Is there, is there any scientific validity to it? And that's when I started looking into it and really looking. And I was amazed. There is 20 to 30 years worth of research on some of these genes, which you would never think talking to people because people say genetics is so new and it's just it's right on the forefront they've been studying this stuff for a long time. And so really now it's that application that people are really interested in and they realize the power of DNA. They realize that there's so much hidden information just to find out who you are. We all have a different story. We all have a different blueprint to what our health trajectory looks like. And DNA really gives us that insight. So you know, helping people understand their 23andMe evolved to, we have a lab evolved to, we have our own array and now we have an interpretation service. So that's been the genesis of, of toolbox genomics. And then we rolled out epigenetics, which I call next level DNA testing, because now we can actually start to look at and measure the expression of your DNA. Yeah. So definitely define epigenetics. What is epigenetics? We've heard of that word in the health space, perhaps heard of that word. Some people may not have heard of that word. So epigenetics is essentially the layer above the DNA. So we know that DNA is bound together. They're hydrogen bonded with you know, an A, a C, a T, or a G, right? And so those are bound to your phosphate backbone. And so depending on how the A or the C or the T or the G line up, it's going to code for different instruction sets, different what we call phenotypes. So it could be things that we can actually see. It can be things that we can measure. It's also things that we can't see or can't measure as well. But 
the thing that starts to govern it is something called methylation. There's three things that govern it. So methylation is one of them. It is essentially a methyl group. For those of you who remember in chemistry or biochem, um, (laughs) um, but it's that carbon and three hydrogens that you're essentially just plopping on to parts of the DNA. And it is telling the enzymes that are going to do the copying, skip it, keep it. And it's, it's like a signaling mechanism, but the other thing that it does is it turns genes on and off. And so this is where it starts to get very interesting from an aging perspective, because like our oncogenes, we want those turned off, but we want our enzyme genes, or we want those turned on because we want to make enough enzymes. We want our aging genes turned off. And so this is something that you are actively dynamically influencing all the time. The second thing is histones. So these are um, another little moiety that goes around the DNA that depends on how tightly you wind up the DNA. So depending on how loose or how tight also is going to play a role in what gets copied over. So, you know, we always want the best stuff to be copied and we want anything that's bad or wonky. We want the body to ignore it. The body tries to do its best, but again, if it's not supported appropriately, it's a problem. And then microRNA. So those are the three epigenetic controllers or modulators that has been studied. The best information, the best thing that we can really measure right now is methylation and methylation status. Yeah, that is another buzzword as well. So methylation, um, what does that mean in layman's terms? So the thought behind that, and what we commonly hear is I'm an overmethylator or I'm an undermethylator. And what they're essentially saying is in undermethylators, I don't have enough methyl groups to then go and methylate these different processes. And then an overmethylator would be somebody who has too many methyl groups. But it's a little bit of a misnomer because in a day, you may methylate certain genes and you may want them undermethylated. And then later at night, you want them overmethylated because you need it turned off. So, you know, like circadian rhythm is a great example of being an epigenetic modifier. Um, pregnancy, there's a lot of genes you need turned on in pregnancy. And if those are off, that's a big problem for the baby. So, really, what I think people, the way I encourage people to think about it, is do you have the machinery or the enzymes to make adequate methyl groups and put them on to these various supplements to make them active, to get into the cell? So ultimately, you can make SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine, which is a big methyl donor. You need a lot of methyl donors, especially as you get older. That can go onto the DNA. It can be used in various biochemical processes. I don't see that many overmethylators. I really think that because we've discussed under, there has to be over. And I think the only way you can possibly be in quote overmethylator is some if you take a product that has too many methyl groups. So you've taken too much methylfolate, methyl B12. Even though methyl B12 is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not a methyl donor, but if you throw in choline and then SAMe, those are all methyl donors. Mm-hmm. And then you can have, you can just feel really anxious. You don't feel well rested, very irritable. 
Is it safe to say as an undermethylator, like you're a poor detoxifier for one, you're more sensitive to perhaps like environmental triggers, toxins in the environment, um, maybe foods, things like that. I, th- those are some themes that I see with folks, including myself. Yes, because you need methyl donors for the liver to do its phase one and phase two processes. So when people say, oh, I have the MTHFR variant, therefore I'm a poor detoxifier, it's not so much as the MTHFR, it's just that you may not have enough methylfolate for these various detox reactions to happen because they are dependent on the presence of a methyl donor. Does that make sense? Definitely. Would there be anything else in the body that also like aside from the liver is dependent on these methyl groups? Like that would show up in other ways. So the brain heavily uses methyl groups. Um, They also use phosphate groups. So ATP, a lot of mitochondrial processes, you know, anything that's dynamic and demanding, usually the body is going to use either a methyl group or a phosphate group to make it active. It's a, it's a controlling mechanism because we don't need everything going into the cell at once, everything on the outside of it. So perhaps like power output from like a fast twitch muscle fiber, for example, that would be, um, like an undermethylator would not have as much power output basically. That I think is a little bit different because you're really have the programming from the DNA perspective, whether you're fast twitch or slow twitch, you can train in more fast twitch if you're slow twitch and vice versa, but usually it involves recruiting other muscle fibers that maybe you're not aware of. I haven't seen methylation per se play a role in that, but I I could be wrong. And I just haven't seen the research on perhaps some of the the genetics. Well, kind of circling back to also epigenetics, like on a granular level, like, I mean, talk about how that impacts how, what epigenetics like are, what are factors that influence that in our daily lives? So I think two of the greatest examples is there's that agouti mouse study that, um, you know, if you just Google it, agouti, A-G-O-U-T-I, you'll see that a mouse whose mother was given a diet devoid of methyl groups. So they didn't have the folate, they didn't have any choline, et cetera. The mouse is born significantly bigger. It has lost the pigmentation from its uh, fur. It's obese and it dies much younger. And then you contrast it with a mouse mother who actually received the appropriate methyl groups and the mouse looks perfectly normal, like the brown mouse you would expect to see. So it is just such a beautiful illustration of diet. This is, this, that's all it is. It's just you know, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. And you had the astronauts who went into space. They were twins. One went into space and one stayed here. And they said, oh, the DNA changed. It wasn't the DNA. It was the expression of it. And some of the immune um, genes got upregulated. So there was an epigenetic change there. And what was really interesting, too, was after a year, those epigenetic differences actually were indistinguishable to show you the power of here, gravity of space of, I, you know, there's a lot of EMFs out in space as well. And so that exerted pressure onto one of the twins DNA and he physically changed. So it's absolutely fascinating here, identical twins. So the point being that 
how we live our life, what we eat, what we cover our body with is constantly sending signals to our DNA and changing the expression of it. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the Pottinger cat study. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. That sounds vaguely familiar. Remind me of that. They took two um, cohorts of cats and one cat cohort was fed like the standard American diet. And the other cohort was fed like a traditional diet that cats like scraps of meat and raw milk. Um, by the fourth generation, the cats um, that were fed the standard American diet, like were arthritic and like their teeth were falling out and they couldn't jump up on counters. Whereas like the fourth generation of the ancestrally fed diet, uh, I mean, they were just like robust felines. And so just to kind of show the the passing down from generations as well. Um, how our diet and our predecessors uh, lifestyles can influence like their offspring. Absolutely. And so when we talk about, you know, if your grandmother smoked, you're at a higher risk for asthma, specifically for women, because so when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was actively influencing the future of my grandchildren, which is such a mind warp to think about because my daughter's eggs developed in utero. So what type of environment I was putting her in was potentially giving my grandchildren a genetic advantage or disadvantage. And we don't think about that. We don't think about, you know, prepping our bodies prior to pregnancy. And this is both men and women, you know, it doesn't, men don't get a free pass on this one because having high quality sperm, which needs to be methylated appropriately is also going to ensure that you get high quality babies. And is in fact, infertility is linked to hypo, so low methylation of sperm, mm-hmm. more prone to breakage. It's not as robust. They don't swim as well. So there's a lot that comes in with it. And from the ancestral perspective, processed food, there is more and more studies coming out showing that the processed food is really messing with our epigenetics. It's just accelerating the aging. Yeah. And considering that, you know, 70% of food that Americans eat is processed. That's just like, I mean, not shocking, I guess, but crazy to think. And also just thinking ancestrally, like, have you done any study and say, like, I've heard the Holocaust survivors, for example, like, um, offspring from Holocaust survivors, i.e. myself and, or like Audrey Hepburn, I think was one, um, where she like had a really hard time putting on weight. People thought she was really sick where that was a generational, um, I guess, health issue that she carried, like just kind of, um, the physiology as well as trauma, like emotional, but like, what have you found in your time and study? Yeah. So absolutely famines, trauma and Holocaust. Those are kind of the three big ones where you will see that carry through. So especially triggers, you know, some people who are just hair, hair trigger happy. A lot of times there was some traumatic event, trauma in utero. I mean, you can't underestimate what's going on because we're constantly releasing hormones. If we're, you know, in a fight or flight, a constant sympathetic or cortisol driven state, that baby is going to start to get conditioned because we're putting different signals or different methyl groups onto the DNA, which is potentially going to prime them to be, you know, maybe they're going to be quick to anger or they're going to um, have a shorter fuse Mm -hmm. and that starts there. But I do want to say that, but you can change that. 
so like yeah yeah I don't want to go down the breaking the, the cycle <laughs> the do, you absolutely can and this is where when we talk about you know mindfulness or positivity or you know just even taking the time and eating with the family it seems so insignificant it seems like no duh of course you should do that but most people don't you know and that's the thing that always blows my mind and Kara Fitzgerald, who does a lot of work um, with functional medicine, published a study just this year where she took a cohort of men, 50 to 70, and just measured their um, biological age and then put them on a diet. And you ready for this? She did food swaps where there were more methyl donors. She gave them probiotics, uh, made sure they had a multivitamin that had methylated B vitamins in it. They did moderate exercise. I think it was three times a week. So it was like walking and maybe some weightlifting. We're not running marathons or anything. Um, Adequate sleep. And then they like seven to eight hours. And then they had to practice mindfulness. Followed them for two months. On average, their aging slowed down by three years. And this is a group of you know, that demographic is notoriously difficult to get them to do anything, to move the needle, et cetera. It was nothing heroic. Wow. That's so amazing. And so just like powerful that the little things that we can do that really can make a difference. Anti-aging without all the creams and the Botox needed there. Yeah, the, 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 the little things matter because they add up because they send signals And, you know, the other part of it too, that I think is absolutely fascinating is the mind gut connection. So we keep trying to figure out like, how is it possible that serotonin is made in your gut, but somehow gets into your brain. And yes, we know there's some in the brain, but like they can't cross the blood brain barrier. And so how does this all work? And so there's a new theory that when we, so that when we have certain thoughts, it immediately sends a signal down our vagus nerve and our vagus nerve ends in our stomach and it changes our microbiome. And so then our microbiome is going to cause, there's going to be a shift. And so maybe now we're going to be shifting more towards obesity. Maybe we're not going to make as much of our neurotransmitters, which are so important. And they're utilized in the mitochondria, in our cells, all over our body. So those gut feelings, when you're like, oh, I have a sinking feeling, there's actually something going on there. It's, it's not a joke. It's you're not making it up. And so I think being aware of that, this is where the power of the thoughts and the mindfulness comes in, which is we're shifting our microbiome and our microbiome plays such a big role in our health as well. Yeah. I love the microbiome. Um, I, I mean, the microbiome has more genes than the actual human genome too. That's right. Like we don't even know the number, right? <laughs> we don't. And you have three yeah. to five pounds, mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not ounces, it's pounds of bacteria. So, you know, if you think about it, if you're like, oh, I took some probiotics and didn't do anything. Well, yeah, got to do a full scale <laughs> yeah, uh, quite a bit. inoculation and you've got to feed them and take care of them. And yeah. I will say, yeah, when I got really sick with mold, like one of the biggest game changers and my healing was like a really high dose of probiotics. I have a lot of gut issues. And then a lot of the stress component, like de-stressing yoga daily and Fred sauna, some limbic system retraining. And those two things combined are really, I mean, kind of going back to that mind gut connection, what really um, spearheaded and really, I think also changed. I was about 20 pounds less than I am today. 
And without changing anything else in my diet or my exercise, it was really my microbiome and my stress levels that I needed to regain that healthy weight. And And our microbiome does impact our genetic expression. And so, you know, if you get someone who doesn't like the way they're aging, I mean, the first place to look, I mean, just easy diet and microbiome. You don't even need to go do a microbiome test if you don't want to, because, you know, sometimes those can be a little bit pricey or, you know, and even though, what was that? Just optimize. Yeah. Optimize. It, or you're like fermented foods, like some goat kefir or some sauerkraut. All of those are great for introducing diversity and you know, just to constantly keep a steady flow of, of different probiotic strains in there. Well said. I know before the show too, we were talking we about obesity being like an issue, um, just like by and large, we all know that in our society. So what do you say for the person that's like, you know, doing all the things to, to really try to change their genetics. They're like, this is in my family. I'm eating right. I'm exercising. Like I keep hitting ceilings. Like what's going on? What's happening at a genetic level? Or perhaps this is where the epigenetics come into play. And we talk a lot about that on the show as well. So it's a little bit about because there definitely are markers for a increased BMI. And so there's one called the FTO gene that some people call the fat. So gene, but it was designed to get us through a famine. And so people who have that gene tend to be anywhere from three to five kilos higher from a a weight perspective. So, you know, that's almost upwards of 12 pounds um, compared to people who don't. Now, most people seem to carry at least one variant on it, if not maybe two. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Those people do better with a higher protein diet. So those are people, if you're going to do keto, it's got to be protein heavy, not necessarily fat heavy, because you may have that, you may have an APOA2, which makes you more sensitive to saturated fat. You're going to gain weight easier. Again, it's from an environmental perspective or an evolution, sorry, an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you need to have adequate weight to get through the times of scarcity. So then you can come around and reproduce and, and stay alive, but there is no scarcity anymore. I mean, we can literally, you know, whatever we can't get from the grocery store, we order, we can order it from overseas. I mean, it's always amazing to me now growing up. Like I remember like, Oh, I can't get that anymore. And that was it. But those (laughs) those days are gone. So What's interesting is I'll get some people with the FTO gene who will say, I've never had a weight issue because FTO acts on another gene. And so it's the other gene. If that one gets turned on, that's where you start to gain the weight. And so people, if you just really do pay attention, you have a great lifestyle, you may never turn that gene on and you never may never have a weight issue. However, it does seem like the lower protein, uh, potentially more of a plant-based diet or processed food does seem to turn that, that gene on. So this is where knowing your genetics can help you fine tune those different nuances. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example. I had a practitioner call me with a patient who was rather distraught because he didn't like the way he was aging. He's 77 and he was coming in at 88 on his biological age and his eye, his eye age, memory age, all of those not doing well. Well, for the past 12 years, he's been eating a plant-based diet because he thought that's the best thing for him. Now, what's interesting is we then also looked at his lab work. His A1C was high. 
his homocysteine is still high. The only thing he was able to shift and it took a long time was his cholesterol. He finally did get his cholesterol numbers down. His inflammatory markers are still high. His mini mental exam didn't improve with a plant-based diet versus his wife also did it. And she wasn't aging as quickly. In fact, she was aging slower. He was so much faster. So my recommendation was actually, he needs to scrap the plant-based diet because it's aging him. It's not working. And he needs to think about a heavier protein diet, which he was in a happy camper, but sometimes, you know, the data is the data. And that's the power of getting that information. Because as you were saying, someone who thinks they're eating well or doing everything right may not be doing it right for their genetics or for themselves. Right. And perhaps they're releasing ultimately the dogmas that we all have about food or like what you just read on paper. And I mean, it sounds like had this person experimented, maybe just like, you know, I'm doing animal-based versus plant-based versus like, there's so many out there, but to release like just what our grip is on what we should eat and more so like really tuning into the body and using that perhaps that data can guide as well. If it's just kind of like, I don't even know where to start, but that's really powerful. And I just goes back to the, like, we're never going to agree. Like the one size fits all diet. There's just not one out there. There Um, really isn't, you know, and I think we've, we've moved, finally, we've moved away from being fat phobic, which is mm -hmm. fabulous. But there's some people that if you eat a lot of saturated fat, you don't have the machinery to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You can still have, you know, maybe it's a monounsaturated fat diet versus you keep the saturated fat at a lower level. It's, it doesn't mean we're being fat phobic because we're not saying low fat. We're saying, I, I would say like smart fat, smart yeah. fat for your genetics. That makes me think of a client of mine that, man, she'd done all the diets and then keto was really popular at the time and like started hitting a roadblock after about two or three weeks on it. And so then transitioned to carnivore, which was also very popular um, and like felt fine. I think at least mentally fine. I think sometimes we can go on a diet and we just feel better because we're doing something consistency, but, um, her cholesterol ended up bumping up to 600 and I've never seen a total cholesterol that high. And for her, it was just like shocking. It was for shocking for me as well. But just to kind of go back to like, man, she needed some plants is what she needed. And like, peace with carbs. And as we integrated that back in and really addressed the microbiome, like her body was back in a happy, healthy place too, for her. Whereas, um, I mean, I think for others I've seen, like they feel great on a carnivore and less plant-based diet. I think a lot of it actually goes back to our gut too, um, how we're digesting and absorbing, but also maybe ancestrally where we're from, you may know a little bit more insight on that. Yes. Yes. And every culture had their own version of fermented foods. Mm -hmm. And so when you, um, you know, there's the Sonnenbergs out of Stanford, they were studying the Maasai Mara in Kenya. And what they found was that they ended up kind of washing their hands in the, like the guts of the goat. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then when they would eat the meat, they had the microbiome on their hands. And so then they were essentially inoculating themselves with some new bacteria. Um, but they do fermented cow milk there with blood in it. So that, you know, Mm. (laughs) um, 
I'm Hungarian. So is, you know, sauerkraut was incredibly popular. You know, Asians have different, like there's kimchi and, and natto. And I truly believe that you can shift your microbiome quite a bit, but I think remembering where you came from and adhering to that type of fermented food might get you more bang for your buck. If I had to, to guess that diet and that fermented food, it makes me think too. So I have patients from all like ethnicities and cultures and, um, like uh, some of my Asian patients that maybe we do a food sensitivity test with like Cyrex labs to just see the autoimmune response to foods they're having. And like, if like rice, for example, which is staple comes up high. So it seems like their guts should be able to digest, absorb, like it's foods they've been raised on. Um, and then we throw like probably toxicity into the mix, like as far as the toxins in the world are also just that, like that right hook perhaps to like, despite the diet, I don't know if you see that like also really messing, messing with our genetic code, but I do a lot of work in the mold space and environmental illness as well, as well as like xenoestrogens and just like BPAs and birth control pills and kind of talk to a little bit about the toxicity outside of just like what we're eating, how that's influencing. And also we can also mitigate that too. It's something that I I wrestle with because if you think back to the industrial revolution or you think back to my grandparents era, everybody smoked. And yet my grandmother, one passed away at 96 and the other one at 95 is still, you know, mentally sharp and doing great. So, so I was like, well, why, how is that? You know, are we, are we truly so much more toxic as a world now than we were then? Because I think you can make an argument that we're not as toxic now, but here's what you can make an argument for. (laughs) We have a lot more antibiotics that we've ever used. We do a lot more C-sections. We don't necessarily nurse our children. You know, well, I, especially I would say like people in our generation, it was like a hit and miss. I feel like now you know, those of us who've had kids, you know, a lot more people have mm-hmm. gone back to nursing. The wave. <laughs> yeah, the wave. Um, seed oils. We have never, ever in our history ever had so many seed, uh, seed oils. Heavily, heavily processed. And I would say that... And the antibiotics are probably the things that have really started to exert a change and a shift on our ability to handle toxins. Because really, if we couldn't handle toxins, we would have died out as a population. If we couldn't handle mold, we would have, like, autoimmunity would have been rampant in my grandparents' generation. But it wasn't. So to me, it means that there's something else that's been introduced. I think you can make an argument for the glyphosate that is on a lot of the carbs that we eat. Um, And let's remember, yes, I understand that it doesn't affect us, but I put that in quotes, but it ruins our microbiome. I would say there's no way it's not affecting us. So despite what everyone says, there is a role that it is having. We just can't identify it. And I think it's a sneaky role. And the other aspect of it is that there's some really interesting research out there on melatonin and how important it is as an anti-inflammatory. Um, it is an antioxidant. And so our mitochondria essentially get poisoned with toxins and with mold. And so then it becomes kind of this mitochondrial issue. That's why we have the brain fog and the energy and 
and the bloating and all of that. And so I actually would be very interested if people had adequate melatonin, but which is coming from tryptophan. So that, that pathway easily gets messed up and it was getting into the cells, into our mitochondria because our gut needs tons and tons of melatonin. I had no idea, like a hundred to 200 times more than the rest of our body. (laughs) And it doesn't make us sleepy. Melatonin made in our cells is non-circadian rhythm dependent. It's only melatonin that's released from the pineal gland. And that's only 5% of the melatonin that we make, Mm -hmm. but all the amazing research and everything that people talk about the benefits of melatonin are coming from the gut. And so I suspect that individuals who have mold sensitivities probably don't make enough melatonin and don't have good detox pathways, whether it was from what they ate in childhood, you know, or the antibiotics or their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our combination there or a combination. Yeah. yeah. It's never yeah. one thing. Right. Uh, kind of, we've brain dumped a lot of information here. Like what are like maybe three practical steps folks can take to like optimizing their epigenetics from today's conversation? So light and dark play a bigger role than you can possibly imagine. So getting out first thing in the morning, don't wear sunglasses, don't wear sunscreen. Sorry for some people in our group, (laughs) Um, but you need to have that light actually hitting your skin and hitting your eyes because that is signaling to your body. You're getting up, you're getting going with the day and recognizing at night that you really do need to step away from the blue light. Um, I have so many blue light blockers on my phone, on my computer. My husband was like, I can't see anything on your phone. I was like, well, that's the whole point. I'm not supposed to see anything. You're yellow to me right now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you have a yellow too, too. Yeah. Um, Cause we have blue light blockers on our, on our computers. Mm. So really being cognizant of that um, microbiome, nourish it, take care of it, love it because it really wants to do you good. You know, no one ever wants to destroy the host that they're in because otherwise they don't have any place to live. Um, They're going to do so much for you. They truly are your superpower and don't underestimate what they can do for you. And then third, just because I think it's so cool, learn how you're aging. So that way you can make an informed decision when you read another blog post, when you meet somebody else is, does this make sense? And is it going to work with your genetics or is it going to work against it? I love that. Well, where can folks find out more about you, the work you're doing in the world? So you can find out more about me at my toolbox genomics. Um, We are in the show notes. There will be a coupon for you if you're interested in doing this testing on yourself. I have live streams that I do every three weeks. So um, this Friday is going to be one all about nutrition and what are the key nutrients that everyone should know about? Because I just feel like there's folate gets so much attention. And then there's other ones like choline, you know, don't like, don't discount choline. It's super important. It's a straight up methyl donor. Um, and um, you can follow us on Instagram, my toolbox genomics. And you can follow me personally at the Gene Whisperer with an ER. Oh, I love that. Oh, my last question for you is just like, what is a chronic wellness hacker, um, just optimizer that you're into right now? Uh, two things. So um, mouth taping has been a game changer. Um, so I actually, I call myself Marley from um, oh, 
Marley, a Christmas Carol. Oh, Christmas Carol. So like once upon a time, they used to put those band-aids around their head (laughs) because they had a toothache. So you can actually get those in it. Just, it's really nice because it keeps your mouth shut because I just didn't realize my mouth was falling open at night. That's Which is so I wasn't nose breathing and nose breathing makes nitric oxide mm. and is incredibly helpful for the brain. It's that's also how you get that deep rhythmic breathing. So that's number one. And number two is lots and lots of magnesium. Um, you need about five milligrams per kilo of body weight elemental. So that's a lot of magnesium, uh, magnesium chloride flakes, take a bath in it two cups of water, one cup of magnesium chloride, spread it all over your body, but don't put it in metal. It will inactivate chloride. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot you can do with, with magnesium and just, you know, period cramps, pain, inability to sleep. Um, you slather it all over your body and then you take some mag glycinate and work your way up to that, that dosage. Yeah. Like over 300 different reactions or yeah. functions. Yeah. And you use it up like that in stress. Yeah. So, you know, taking 200 milligrams of magnesium truly does nothing yeah. Yeah. to drop in the bucket. So true. Mm. Do you have a favorite form by the way? There is a company called ancient minerals. Um, they have a completely pure magnesium chloride and you can just get the flakes. And so it's a really economical way you get that. You can take a bath with it. Then you just put it in like a plastic or a glass spray bottle. You can just make your own magnesium chloride. And then um, Jigsaw Health has a magnesium glycinate and it's already in the, the way that they label it is actually in the elemental form. So I believe every cap is 50 milligrams elemental, which is like 400 milligrams um, if you were just to put a magnesium glycinate on the label. Because when they say magnesium glycinate and they say 120 milligrams, only 14% of that is elemental. Yeah. So this is why different magnesiums are more or less bioavailable. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a whole nother podcast. Whole nother to topic. I love that. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks so much, Erica. We'll be keeping up with your work. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. Well, that's all for today's show. If you liked today's episode, feel free to share with someone who may like it too. And I also love hearing from you. Don't hesitate to click the five stars button in the app and leave a review. It helps us get the word out to other health detectives just like you who can benefit from uncovering health truths for their body, mind, and soul. And if you need anything, reach out to me over at drlauren.com. All right, until next time, go out there and keep it real.